Hi, I'm Gary T. McDonald, author of The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, and I'm delighted to be with uh, Dr. Tina Ray Collins today. She's the author of several books, but today we're going to be discussing her book, The Judeo-Christian Myth, and uh, my book a little bit, too. Uh, Dr. Collins, we've both written books, very different books, but I'd say that they were both aimed squarely at debunking fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, can we start today by you telling us a little bit about your religious background and how did you come to be where you are now? Okay, well, first of all, Gary, please call me Tina. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was raised in the Church of Christ, uh, third generation, and at least at that time, it was exclusive. Nobody was going to heaven except us. No Catholics, no Protestants, which we did not consider ourselves. We were the one true church. And I felt special that God had let me be born into a family that knew the truth. I was quite dedicated to the pursuit of truth and spent a lot of time defending my uh, beliefs and the Bible. But when I turned 60 years old, I, I felt at a loss as to what to do with my life. I'd spent the first 20 years uh, growing up, the next 20 getting married and having kids, and my last 20 raising my kids, who were all finally grown. So I thought about what I loved, which was uh, writing and studying the Bible. So I decided to get a PhD in biblical studies. That took about two and a half years. And when I was doing my master's degree, I, I realized that no matter what question came up, all the so-called experts disagreed. And that was kind of shocking to me. I guess I had lived in a bubble. All I had heard was a Church of Christ doctrine. And, you know, I didn't know all this other stuff. But the main thing was when I started to do my dissertation. And uh, I, I began to get deeper into it. And I, I came to the conclusion that um, just based on studying the Bible alone, that the story itself was a metaphor. I mean, if you look at it, the Bible says that Jesus is the word and the word existed from the beginning. Um, this was the seed or Yahweh's seed, his semen, his fruit that he planted in the world. And that was the word of truth. And, and the Bible talks about how it it was abused and died and was rejected of men, but it sprouted in the hearts of honest souls and rose to produce fruit. You know, Isaiah 53, uh, 3 says he was despised and rejected of men, while Jeremiah 8 9 says they have rejected the word of the Lord. And there are various other things like that in the Bible, as you know. So, you know, the word was trampled underfoot. The word was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. The word would judge in the last days, but all judgment has been committed to the Son. So once I came to that conclusion, I was still a Christian, actually. Um, but as time went on, I got to thinking about, well, if it's just a metaphor, then it's not real. Um, but I, I, I think that my thinking goes along with yours. Um, I kind of talk about in my book about the about Jesus as compared to other gods whereas you well why don't you tell me a little bit how you came to write this uh, counter narrative or this uh, other gospel well 
I guess, uh, like you, I, I was raised in a, um, a a particular spiritual community. It was the it was uh, the disciples of Christ rather than Church of Christ, although they were very close. I think, and in uh, nationally, I think that's a, a very liberal kind of denomination. But in the Bible Belt, where we're both from, I think you're from Eastern Kentucky, right? Right. And, and I'm from Texas. Uh, there, that church is very fundamentalist. And I was taught that the the Bible was literally true, every word of it, and uh, there were no inconsistencies or errors. But when I got to be around 15 years old, I met um, a, uh, a friend, uh, a, a kid in school named Lynn Medlin, and he introduced me uh, to reading philosophy. Suddenly, I was reading Voltaire and Nietzsche, and, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of... Um, popular sort of criticism of uh, the Bible at that time. It, it, it just wasn't accessible. You had to be sort of a scholar to, to have access to that kind of writing. Uh, but little by little, studying what I could find and also um, uh, getting interested in Buddhism, I ended up drifting away from Christianity altogether. And uh, I spent many years pursuing a career in screenwriting in Los Angeles. And then uh, at a certain point, I really started practicing Buddhism. And uh, ironically, uh, learning that and studying that and practicing that brought me back to some of the things that Jesus had taught that I remembered from Christianity and I became interested in sort of trying to find the real wisdom in the New Testament as opposed to all of the uh, sort of apocryphal, uh, I'm sorry, apocalyptic and uh, heaven or hell kinds of uh, talk in the book. Trying to find the things in the New Testament that really spoke to me about how to be a happier person. And uh, at one particular day, I, you know, it just came to me that maybe I should try to write that down somehow. And the idea of writing a story, uh, an engaging story about uh, a nephew of both Jesus and Doubting Thomas, uh, who witnesses what actually happened, uh, rather than what we're told through the lens of Paul and Paul's theology which is what we get in the, the four Gospels in the New Testament. Um, so that's kind of how I came to write what I was, I was uh, writing in this book. Well, I, I, I just want to say I, I love your book. Thank um, you. Took, you're welcome. It took me a few days to get started, but once I began, I, I seriously couldn't put it down. I think you're an excellent writer, and you know how to hold a person's person's attention um and you have an amazing cross between you are an amazing cross between a historian and a storyteller it's it's almost like i'm reading a, a well it is like a biography i'm reading and you do both very well it's, and when i was reading the book it was like i had gone back in time and was living that story along with thomas because your characters just come alive and I, I really learned to relate to some of them um, because the story that you present is 
it's personal and it's it's intimate. You show the humanity, you show humanity in all its its beauty and its flaws. And and I think that's something we don't see in the gospels, in the Bible. Uh, it's it, it's disjointed. Um and I, I I don't know how you took the information you had and turned it into something that lost its mir- miraculous elements, yet you instilled in me a renewed sense to live a better, more loving life. And not because, you know, I felt like somebody was up there going to punish me if I didn't. It's just the story is so sweet and made me want to do good. So I think you really succeeded in getting your thoughts and your beliefs about how people should live into that story, even though it's a novel. Um, But the main thing I love about it is that it actually presents a credible story. If Jesus really lived, then I think you've created a tale about him that people can actually believe. And uh, I wish we could put your gospel in the Bible along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That way it would allow people to look at the other gospels in a whole new way. And I think it would open a lot of people's eyes to what the real truth is. Well, thank you. Uh, that's that's all I hope to accomplish. And and uh, um, <laughs> you've been, you've been very generous with me. But I want to talk a little bit about your book. Uh, when you um, y- your book is so much bigger in a way than my book because not only does it deal with uh, the parallels between. Um, all of the mystery cult religious ideas of the time that that Jesus was living, but it goes back even further to the to the beginning of the Old Testament and all of the ancient gods that that were around during the time that the Israelites were becoming a, a nation, and um, it's really eye opening in, in the sense that once you read your book, you just can't really sort of I don't, I don't see how anybody can look at the Bible the same way again because suddenly you see that, that everything in it has been drawn from other places or, or at the very least were, were parallels to, to other thinking that was going on in different parts of uh, both the, the Greek Empire or the uh, Persian Empire. And uh, I just found it fascinating. And, Thank uh, you. And, and specifically, when when uh, it, when I'm thinking about the story of Jesus and the story of Christianity as it developed, uh, you bring out so well the parallels between um, Jesus and Je- the Jesus as we know him from the mystery cult that Paul and his his followers created. Uh, as you know from my book, I mean, I certainly believe that Jesus lived and and uh, was uh, crucified by the Romans, but but completely for different reasons than what what we get in the Gospels, and yeah. that that Paul, who desperately needed uh, a, a mystery cult to absolve him of his own what he felt like was his own sinful nature, uh, reached into. Um, the story that grabbed the story of this guy that had died some years earlier and created this theology uh, that was very much like the theology being practiced in this, these mystery cults. Like for instance, the, the mystery cult around the God Attis 
and um, Paul, you know, grew up in Tarsus, which is uh, what we now call it's a it's a town in what we now call Turkey, but it was right there on the on the uh, crossroads between the Greek Empire and the the old Greek Empire and the Persian Empire, with all of these different stories and myths from these different cultures banging up against each other. And I think Paul really um, was affected by those uh, and and found things in them that he wanted to bring to the Jews. And so he grabbed Jesus and, and inserted him into this story. But maybe you should tell us a little bit about Addis, because Addis um, predated Jesus by centuries, but uh, he really sort of resembles the story of Jesus in some ways. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned Addis. I did a lot of research on a lot of gods, of course, to to show the parallels. But I think Addis is a very good one that you have mentioned. Um, some versions of his story say that after he was murdered, he returned to life three days later. Some say he died in the winter and rose again in the spring. But either way, he was a dying and rising sun and vegetation god. And uh, yeah, you're right. He began to be worshipped in uh, Greece around 1250 BCE. And Addis represented the promise of uh, reborn life. And in the Bible, we see women, in Ezekiel 8:14, we see women weeping for the god Tammuz. Um, and in the same way, people lamented and wailed at the passing of Addis. Uh, they considered him the most high god. They said he brought salvation. They even ate bread to commemorate his body. Just as Paul, as you mentioned, wrote instructions for the same for the Christians to do the same. Um, Addis was popular in some parts of the Roman Empire at the same time Jesus began to be worshipped. A temple dedicated to him and his mother, the goddess Sibyl, stood on Vatican Hill in Rome for um, six centuries, up to the fourth century C.E. So this is, uh, of course, was when Christianity became was becoming popular. Uh, and, and so, therefore, Addis is evidence that a Savior God died and rose for the salvation of man at least a century or two before Jesus was born. When, when Addis died, supposedly his blood dripped down to the ground, making the ground fertile and productive. He was hung so, on a cross, too, wasn't he? He was hung, yes. hung, on, he was hung on a tree or something? Yes, he was hung on a tree, and his dying blood, uh, you know, dripped into the ground and redeemed the earth, which brought life. And what's interesting about this to me, and I didn't realize this until I went to uh, Israel in 2014, um, but when I was there, I saw the piece of ground that Jesus' blood supposedly dripped onto and soaked down into the earth to redeem Adam. And, um, you know, at one time, and I write this in my book, Babies were thought to be made of menstrual blood. I mean, think about it, you know, uh, uh, blood suddenly quit flowing each month and then a baby comes. So if you're, you know, if you're ancient people and you don't understand anything, you're thinking, well, then all that blood must have turned into a baby. And because then blood started flowing again. Uh, So it's natural that they would think that. And, you know, the Bible says the life is in the blood. So, yes, Paul was very aware of Addis, and, and that did affect his teaching. We see the triumph from the corruption of the grave in 1 Corinthians 15. And um, the earliest depictions of Addis presented him with a sheep across his shoulders. 
and we see, of course, Jesus with he's he's a good shepherd, and we see him with sheep. And all of these images are put forth in the story of Jesus. Um, and so it's hard for me, uh, not just Addis, but all the other gods, because they all have certain things that that were like Jesus. It's hard for me now, as you said, it's hard to look at that now and say, oh, well, Addis was resurrected centuries before Jesus in order to bring salvation. But he was just a myth. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, now that was true. Well, how would we know which was true? We've got all these others that came before Jesus, and now suddenly here he is. Why would we believe his story to be, you know, why would we believe he was really the son of a god? And there, there are some others like Dionysus and Osiris and... Um, right. What uh, do you do? You see similar parallels there. There are, but they they're they're different. Each god had like maybe a few things that were like Jesus. You know, Dionysus was the wine god, and so we have Jesus. You know, turning water to wine. Uh, it was as if they took Jesus and tried to make him control everything that the other gods controlled. You know, but. And Addis wasn't the only one who um, they had ate bread and thought that it was his body either. There were other gods like that. The ancients people, ancient people thought that if you ate a lion, for instance, you would have courage like a lion. So if you ate a god, then you would become godly. You would become the son of a god. And basically that's what Christianity is about, right? We become the brothers and sisters of Jesus. We, we become godly. Wasn't there an element in the Dionysus mystery cult where the, the wine really was the, the blood of Dionysus? Wasn't Dionysus' body sort of ripped apart in some kind of way? And, and then uh, there was a festival every year to commemorate this, and, and they drank the wine in order to uh, drink the blood of the god? Is that, is that yeah. right? Well, I'm I'm a little bit foggy on that right this moment, but uh, it makes sense. And we know that that's what they do with Jesus. You know, some believe that it actually becomes his body and it becomes his blood. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of cannibalism if you think about it. Uh, and, and maybe it's just uh, not real cannibalism. Of course, we're not literally doing it, but it's still the same thing if you're doing it and thinking about that. Mm-hmm. It, it's pagan, paganism, really. Yeah. Well, since you've given up Christianity, what, what's the biggest difference in your life? And and uh, I'd like to discuss that and what, what you see as sort of your mission in life now with your books. Mm. Well, you know, some people say they miss Jesus. They miss that relationship they had. And I don't maybe I never had one. <laughs> Some people would probably say that. But um you know a couple of years bef- before I lost my faith in the Bible, I I lost my younger son. And uh, so maybe that's the reason I never really miss Jesus. I miss I miss my son so much. I, there's no room to miss an imaginary being that I that I thought was in my head, but but I was shocked one day when I realized that there was nobody else in my head. I had, for my entire life, there were three other gods, basically, in my head. There was, you know, Yahweh and Jesus and the Spirit, whatever the Spirit is. 
um, and they were in my head and they knew everything that was going on. And so it was, it was, uh, it was kind of strange when I realized it's just me in there. But that was also very freeing because I realized I was alone and I could think whatever I wanted to. And, um, but mainly, I guess, I've just found great peace. And the, the Bible talks about a peace that passes understanding. But how can you have that when you feel that there are these beings possessing you, living inside your head and judging every thought you have? That There's no peace there, but I feel like I finally found that peace. But the main thing I think I would say is that I feel that I'm no longer separated from others. As I said in the beginning, the Church of Christ is exclusive, and I felt like everybody else was a sinner. Um, And it was hard to have a good relationship with people when you think they're not up to par. Um, And I no longer feel like I'm one of those pets that receive special treatment from daddy. You know, I no longer judge others as being unworthy until they comply with these commands. And I feel like I have more love in my heart for, for other people. And I want to do good more, not to please a vengeful master, but, you know, just because that's what I want. I can look at myself now and think what I want to be. And I can love the unlovable, which includes myself, too. Because, you know, Christianity Christianity can give you a very bad inferiority complex sometimes because we're worthless, supposedly, without Jesus. So I can love you without reservation. I don't have to fix you or warn you or hold myself apart from you so that I'm not stained by your filthy garment and your blood is no longer on my hands. Um I will ask for a mission in life. Um, I I really don't want to be militant. I was a militant Christian. Um, however, if my books or my words can help some people find freedom from the oppression of religion, then I would absolutely love that. It would so, be. So you think? Ahead. So you think Christianity and is really pernicious in a way, right? I think it is. And sometimes I go back and forth between thinking, oh, well, that's their story. If they want to believe that, that's fine. But then on the other hand, I look at all the evil that that comes from from not just Christianity, but other Abrahamic religions, too. I mean, even if it's just like I was saying, I set myself apart and I thought I was better than others. And that's just that the very bottom of all the things that could happen, you know. Um, but well, if see, I could do, go ahead, go ahead. If, if I could do anything to help, to influence people, uh, to get out from under that oppression and to be able to have the freedom that I now have, I would love to be able to do that. And so that they could live a life without fear. Well, I think we've both tried to do that with our books. Um, the, the hard part is to get those books out into the world and get people, especially the people that really need to read them, to read them. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, when I started to, uh, d- when I did my dissertation and I came to the conclusions that I came to, when it finally dawned on me, hey, you know, you're not a Christian anymore. I remembered that somebody, like the year before that, had said something to me, just planted a seed. 
And so I went back to that person and I said, hey, remember when you told me such and such? And he said, I'm not the person you need to talk to. You need to go over here and talk to this person. So I went and talked to that person and he gave me tons of information that I was able then to go research myself. This was after I had concluded that the Bible was a metaphor and I wanted to go out then and look at other literature. And so that little seed that was planted by that one person, and we didn't even delve into it at the time, helped me a lot. And so I'm thinking that we plant seeds, you know, like this podcast, whatever we can do, we can talk to people individually, we can be on Facebook, we can just spread it. And I think the internet is helping tremendously to get it out there. That's true. You know, when when I was facing all of my decon, uh, deconversion or deconstruction, as they say these days, uh, back when I was in my teens, a long, long time ago, there just wasn't any support for it at all. There was, no. there was no one out there to talk to, especially if you were in a, you know, a Bible Belt community where everybody was, uh, you know, you couldn't, in Dallas where I grew up, you couldn't throw a rock in any direction without hitting a church. You know? <laughs> uh, it, so it was quite a lonely thing. And if you didn't have uh, a support and, and you didn't have all the wonderful writing that's been done over the course of my lifetime, uh, it, it was it was really difficult. So I think our books are really important that way. But you know, I, in some ways, I'm I'm just really worried about the world because uh, the pernicious effects of religion are so are so controlling in um, in ways that are really destroying the world. And um, religious people are often. Uh, you know, there there are progressive Christians, but mm. they're the minority. They're, they're the tiny minority, and right. the the big the biggest group of Christians are the ones that are really supporting uh, things that are really really destructive in the world today. So, um, I, it's it just seems really really important that we get this information out and try, especially to young people, and try to get them thinking and get them freed up from from this. Yeah, and I think young people are the answer. You know, religion is not just destroying people. It's destroying the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't have, or a, a lot of people don't have, the care and concern for our environment and, and the earth in general. Uh, because we think, oh, well, Jesus is coming to destroy it anyway. What difference does it make? That's what I used to think. I didn't care. I didn't care about the earth because I thought... God would make sure it survived until Jesus came back. There are so many ramifications to religious thinking that just plays into everything. And you're right, we we do. We definitely need to get this information out there. Well, hopefully we will. <laughs> We're trying. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Tina, it's been a delight talking to you today. And um, I, again, your book, uh, The Judeo-Christian Myth, is an important book, for, especially for anybody that is thinking about religion and wants to see uh, a broader picture of, of uh, their own faith tradition, whatever it is. Uh, your book really is eye-opening in terms of uh, all of the 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 things that you bring together to to show that uh, some of these things are just 
universal and spread out all over the world and not exclusive to any one particular religion. So I hope people will uh, will pick up your book and mine too. <laughs> sure, yes, I definitely want them to read yours because I they will they will enjoy it so much. Besides just uh, get you know opening their eyes, I think they will just enjoy reading your novel. It's 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 beautiful, and and they will come away from it feeling better, being better people. Well, thank you. And thank you for talking to me today, and um, I hope we we get a chance to talk soon. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye.